Welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for January the 29th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, A Project Designed to Help. Junior League Launches Period Pantry to Support Students' Needs. It's written by Dolly Butts. Junior League of Sioux City is making menstrual products more accessible to Siouxland middle and high school students through a period pantry the organization founded. A few years back, members voted to put more of a focus on women's empowerment. The period pantry is one of the projects that emerged. Boxes of pads and tampons filled the shelving unit on a recent Thursday at Junior League's headquarters. Nearby, stacks of zippered pouches were printed with affirmations such as, You are beautiful. You are amazing. You are awesome. You are loved. Letty O'Kane who co-chairs the Period Pantry Project, said statistics show that one in five girls will miss a day of school due to not having adequate menstrual products. We found that there was a really a need, especially after COVID, and where the poverty levels were at. That's where the Period Pantry started, she said. We hear a lot from nurses, from teachers, how it's not, it is very needed. The products that they do get might be more hospital grade and it's not always comfortable. We really are making an effort to make sure that we're getting adequate supplies for the students. Paula Brown, Junior League of Sioux City president, said purchasing a variety of supplies for the pantry is key. They need more than just tampons. Some girls don't use tampons or vice versa, she said. We're discreet with it as well. The girls can go to school and nurse, get the supplies that they need in a baggie, and leave the room. Nobody would know that it's that's what she's getting. O'Kane added that students can pick up enough free menstrual products not just to get them through the school day, but through their entire cycle. They're covered going to work. They're covered being able to be in sports and extracurricular activities. They don't have to worry about whether they have the adequate supplies to get them through, she said. The Period Pantry Project began providing supplies to six Sioux City Community School District middle and high schools in August. On Monday, the project expanded to the South Sioux City Community School District. The project has distributed more than 12,000 products so far. In addition to Sioux City and South Sioux City Schools, Kayla Kellen, who was also who also co-chairs the project, said the Period Pantry serves Siouxland Foster Closet. Everything is free to the students, the schools, she said. A lot of the school nurses purchase products with their own money to be able to help the girls that need them. We hope that this is a beneficial program for them so they don't have to do that. Kellen said the organization has been collecting supplies for a long time. She said many of the products were purchased with monetary donations. Junior League of Sioux City also accepts menstrual products and has a donation list on its Facebook page. Products can be dropped off at the Discovery Shop or purchased from an online retailer and sent directly to Junior League. It can be loose products as long as they're still packaged, O'Kane said. If somebody opens a box and decides they don't need the remainder of them, they are able to bring them to us and we can still utilize them. O'Kane said Junior League hopes to continue to expand the project not just to other schools but community organizations as well. She said the Period Pantry Project is also slated to begin serving the Sanford Center, a nonprofit social agency. Organizations and schools who could benefit from the project are encouraged to email Junior League of Sioux City at periodpantry at juniorleagueofsiouxcity.com. Send a message to the group's Facebook page or call the Junior League Discovery Shop at area code 712-255-0072. 
Next up is a story entitled Rag Bride 2024 Route Unveiled. Cyclists start in Glenwood, won't pass through Siouxland. It's written, written by Peggy Senzarino of the Sioux City Journal, and the dateline is Des Moines. The route for the 2024 version of the Register's annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa will be taking a southerly torn, turn this summer. According to an announcement at Saturday's night's Iowa Event Center, the 51st annual ride will begin in Glenwood, Iowa on Keg Creek, a Missouri River tributary, and end in Burlington, Iowa on the Mississippi River. Saturday's Ragbri Route reveal also named overnight stops, which will include Red Oak, Atlantic, Winterset, Knoxville, Ottumwa, and Mount Pleasant. It's a small-town heavy route, with only Ottumwa and Burlington having more than 10,000 residents. Ragbri 2024 will take place from Sunday, July 21st through Saturday, July 27th. The route crossing Iowa will total 424 miles, one of the shortest routes on record. Last year's route started in Sioux City and ended in Davenport, Iowa. The crowd peaked on the fourth day of the ride last year between Ames and Des Moines with an estimated 60,000 people. Organizers are expecting attendance this year to roughly equal or slightly surpass that of 2022. On the first leg of that year's ride, an estimated 30,000 riders, including unregistered ones, made the journey from Sergeant Bluff to Ida Grove, Iowa. The last time Ragbride didn't pass through Siouxland was in 2019 when the starting point was Council Bluffs. This year's route will have 18,737 feet of climb, quite a bit more than last year's 16,549 feet of climb. It will be by far the hilliest Ragbri on record. There's going to be a lot of hills. I can't stress that enough, Ragbri Ride Director Matt Fippen said in a statement. If you ride your bicycle and train, you're going to be in a good spot. The route and roads the ride will travel will st- are still being finalized. Next up is an article entitled, Wastewater Tests Show COVID Surging. As many as one-third in the U.S. may get it by late February. This is written by Tim Henderson. Although it's spotty and inconsistent in many places, wastewater testing is pointing to a new wave of COVID-19 infections, with as many as one-third of Americans expected to contract the disease by late February. With pandemic fatigue also in full force and deaths and hospitalizations well down from peaks in 2021 because of high vaccination and immunity rates, many people are inclined to shrug off the new wave fueled by the JN1 variant. But COVID-19 continues to take thousands of lives a month. Older, sicker people need to take particular precautions, experts point out, and everybody should think about the debilitating condition known as long COVID that can strike even young, healthy people and last years. Wastewater testing indicates the current wave of COVID-19 peaked in late December with 1.9 million daily infections, the highest since the Omicron wave of 2021. Iowa's rate of COVID-19 infections was rated moderate during the second week of January, down from a high level the week of December 31st through January 6th, according to Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Some experts want to maintain that expand, want to maintain and expand wastewater surveillance to stay on top of future waves at state and local levels, even as the public has wearied of COVID-19 mitigation efforts. 
If you know you are one of the first communities where it's surging, that could be very helpful, said Michael Horger, a Tulane University School of Medicine assistant professor who make the national estimate about peak infection rates and future infection forecasts. Like many experts, Horger said everybody should be more aware of the high risk and try to avoid getting affected or reinfected with COVID-19 since every new infection increases the chances of long COVID. He said Americans might be experiencing dissent neglect, the phenomenon that makes people more careless when things are getting better. Everyone is vulnerable in some way. The best way to avoid getting long COVID is to avoid getting COVID, Horger said. Deaths have declined more slowly in states with older populations such as Vermont, Hawaii, and Maine, according to a state-line analysis of preliminary data from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Vermont hospital employees started masking again earlier this month amid the new surge. Alarm bells are going off in other states as well. Indiana's most populous county asked residents with mild symptoms to avoid crowded emergency rooms to prioritize care for patients seriously ill with COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses. Michigan reported its highest weekly COVID-19 death toll since late 2022, around 156 in mid-January. Illinois saw a 17% jump in COVID-19 hospitalizations in one week earlier this month. It can be hard to get a read on local trends, however, when testing is inconsistent and methods of analysis vary. The CDC publishes a current conditions map based on wastewater analysis that shows high or very high COVID-19 levels in wastewater for every state with sufficient data. Iowa's level is currently very high based on six sites reporting. The categories are not specific but indicate virus levels that are high compared with the past. But at the same time, public patience with masking and other precautions is at a low, making it more likely that infection will spread and claim new victims among the vulnerable. In South Carolina, Clemson University got high marks in 2020 for its wastewater surveillance program, earning a congratulatory visit from the White House Coronavirus Tax Force. But today, the university has lost interest, said David Freeman, an environmental engineering professor who ran surveillance for three sewer plants, including the universities. Today, he monitors only one community plant, though he can see that its level of COVID-19 is higher than at any time since 2021 by looking at virus copies detected in tests. Even the university's plant itself has dropped out of testing, he said. The testing is free, but there's some labor involved in collecting the sample and sending it off, and I haven't been able to convince the university to keep doing it, Freeman said. Interest in this has really fallen off. To me, it's almost unethical that we're not warning people that this highly transmissible virus is still with us, and some people should really be taking precautions, he added. Some people with higher health risks should really be putting on a mask again. A Clemson spokesperson, Joe Galbraith, said the university considers wastewater testing to be a valuable tool, but decided recently to rely on individual COVID-19 testing instead to monitor the disease within the university. Clemson is, however, partnering with the state and other South Carolina universities to create a statewide wastewater testing program, Galbraith said. There are statewide wastewater testing programs based on partnerships with academia in other states such as New York and Oregon. Older people and cancer patients make up an increasing proportion of COVID-19 deaths according to state lines analysis. 
People 65 or older made up 88% of those deaths last year, compared with 69% in the peak year for deaths 2021. Cancer patients made up 12% of COVID-19 deaths last year, up from 5% in 2021. In some states with older populations, COVID-19 deaths remain stubbornly high compared with other states. Vermont had the lowest COVID-19 death rate in the country in 2021, but now ranks fourth in the number of deaths per capita behind Kentucky, West Virginia, and Mississippi. Last year, Vermont had 220 deaths related to COVID-19, according to the analysis. That was almost two-thirds of the 2021 total of 331 such deaths. No other state had nearly as high a proportion. Hawaii was next with 35% of its peak level 2021 COVID-19 death toll happening in 2023. That was followed by Maine at 32%, Massachusetts at 31%, and New Hampshire at 29%, all states with relatively old populations. Texas, which is relatively young last year, had 10% of the COVID-19 deaths that it did in 2021, about 4,700 compared with 48,000. Vermont has seen increased hospitalizations for COVID-19 this year and has been suggesting that people wear masks if they think they were exposed or have a high risk of serious illness, said Ben Truman, a spokesperson for the state health department. The guidance also applies to the flu and RSV, which are peaking in winter months, he said. Residents in Vermont reacted calmly and cooperatively in the early days of the pandemic, saving lives early on compared to other states, said John Davey, an epidemiologist for the state health department. It wasn't divisive. It wasn't an identity issue here, Davey said. In some areas, the latest wave of infections may even be higher than the 2021 Omicron wave, which crested around 6.5 million infections per day, according to Horberger's analysis. In Santa Clara County, home of California's Silicon Valley, wastewater shows some areas reached their highest infection counts ever earlier this month. Now we come to an article entitled Living the Dream, Sioux City High School Students Bring Personal Perspective to MLK Essay Writing Contest. This is written by Earl Horlick. East High School freshman Yarzetzi Olivares admitted she ex- experienced racism in the past. It was never a big thing, but sometimes being judged solely on the way you look feels bad, Olivares, who is Hispanic, explained. On the other hand, West High School senior Mahogany Van Pelt doesn't remember being a victim of prejudice. Compared to what my mom or my grandmother went through, I've been fortunate, said Van Pelt, who is black. However, in her role as student council president, she is vigilant when it comes to representing West's diverse student body. Everybody's opinion matters, Van Pelt said. Every voice deserves to be heard. Van Pelt, Olivares, and North High School junior Alyssa Mulder were selected winners of the Sioux City Community School District's annual Martin Luther King Jr. essay contests. The three students read their essays during the Sioux City NAACP's Martin Luther King Jr. celebration held January the 21st at First Congressional United Church of Christ. Olivares, who wasn't used to public speaking, admitted to being a nervous wreck. I was shaking and stammering and couldn't say the word intelligence without stuttering, she said, shaking her head at the memory. How embarrassing was that? Olivares' essay revolved around how she wanted to follow in King's footsteps. 
Martin Luther King believed in peaceful protest, she said. So do I. With two older sisters and a younger brother, Olivares lives with her mom, a school custodian, and her dad, a meatpacking plant employee. My parents wanted all of us kids to live out our own dreams, she said, just like the MLK wanted. In Olivares's case, that means someday studying mathematics at a university. I used to think I wanted to study engineering, she said. Then I discovered it wasn't as interesting as I first thought. When she isn't in school, Olivares likes spending time with her family and hanging out with friends. So does Van Pelt, but she is also a Marvel Cinematic Universe fanatic. I love Marvel superhero movies, she said. Bucky Barnes, a.k.a. the White Soldier, is my favorite character because he is neither a good guy or a bad guy. Unlike Olivares, Van Pelt enjoys public speaking. I was a little nervous before I had to read my essay, she said. Everybody was so nice. Before I knew it, I felt right at home. This is a good thing, since Van Pelt will be going to the University of Iowa next year pursuing a degree in mass communications. Still, she wants to lead a purposeful life like MLK had. As a student council president, I enjoy getting feedback from other people, Van Pelt said. They know I value their opinions. Van Pelt certainly valued Olivares' opinion. The two girls met at the MLK celebration. I was able to talk with Yarazadi, who said who is so impressive as a freshman, she said. Yarzetti has her whole life ahead of her. Van Pelt, Olivares, like Van Pelt, Olivares is appreciative of MLK as well as the work of other civil rights leaders both before and after. We've made big strides, Olivares said. More needs to be done. Now here's some articles from the Nation and World page. First up, U.S. base attack kills three. Dozens injured in drone strike as Biden vows response. This is from Zeke Miller and Lolita Baldor of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Columbia, South Carolina. President Joe Biden said Sunday that the U.S. shall respond after three American troops were killed and dozens more were injured in an overnight drone strike in northeast Jordan near the Syrian border. Biden blamed Iran-backed militias for the first U.S. fatalities after months of strikes by such groups against American forces across the Middle East since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Biden, who was traveling in South Carolina, asked for a moment of silence during an appearance at a Baptist church's banquet hall. We had a tough day last night in the Middle East. We lost three brave souls in an attack on one of our bases, he said. After the moment of silence, Biden added, and we shall respond. With an increasing risk of military escalation in the region, U.S. officials were working to conclusively identify the precise group responsible for the attack, but they have assessed that one of several Iranian-backed groups was behind it. Biden said in a written statement that the United States will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said we will take all necessary actions to defend the United States, our troops, and our interests. Iran-backed fighters in East Syria began evacuating their posts, fearing U.S. airstrikes, according to Omar Abu Layla, a Europe-based activist who heads the Deir Azor 24 media outlet. He told the Associated Press that the areas are the strongholds of Mayadeen and Bokamal. 
According to a U.S. official, the number of troops injured by the one-way attack drone rose to at least 34. Another official, who also spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss details not made public, said a large drone struck the base, with which two other American officials identified as an installation in Jordan known as Tower 22. It is along the Syrian border and is used largely by troops involved in the advise and assist mission for Jordanian forces. The small installation, which Jordan does not publicly disclose, includes U.S. engineering, aviation, logistics, and security troops. Austin said the troops were deployed there to work for the lasting defeat of ISIS. Three officials said the drone struck near the troops' sleeping quarters, which they said explained the high casualty count. The U.S. military base at Al-Tanf in Syria is just 12 miles north of Tower 22, the Jordanian installation provides a logistical hub for U.S. forces in Syria, including those at Al-Tanf, which is near where the borders of Iraq, Syria, and Jordan intersect. Jordanian statement, state television quoted Muhannan Modabin, a government spokesman, as insisting the attack happened across the border in Syria. U.S. troops long have used Jordan, a kingdom bordering Iraq, Israel, the Palestinian territory of the West Bank, Saudi Arabia, and Syria as a basing point. Next is an article entitled, Activists Hurl Soup at Mona Lisa. Farmers set up tractor blockades, officials vow to beef up security. This is written by Sylvie Corbet of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Paris. France's Interior Ministry on Sunday ordered a large deployment of security forces around Paris as angry farmers threatened to head toward the capital hours after climate activists hurled soup at the glass protecting the Mona Lisa painting at the Louvre Museum. French farmers are putting pressure on the government to respond to their demands for better remuneration for their produce, less red tape, and protection against cheap imports. Speaking after an emergency meeting on Sunday evening, Interior Minister Gerald Darmanian said that 15,000 police officers are being deployed, mostly in the Paris region. Darmanian said he ordered security forces to prevent any blockade of Rungis International Market, which supplies the capital and surrounding region with much of its fresh food, and the Paris airports, as well as to ban any convoy of farmers from entering the capital and any other big city. He said that helicopters will monitor convoys of tractors. Darmanin said possibly all eight highways heading to Paris will be blocked Monday from midday and urged car and truck drivers to anticipate blockades. Difficulties will obviously be very important, he said. Farmers of the Rural Coordination Union in the Lodet Garnon region, where the protests originated, said they planned to use their tractors Monday to head toward the Rungis International Market. France's two biggest farmers' unions said in a statement that their members, based in areas surrounding the Paris region, would seek to block all major roads to the capital with the aim of putting the city under siege starting Monday afternoon. Earlier on Sunday, two climate activists hurled soup at the glass protecting the Mona Lisa in the Louvre Museum and shouted slogans advocating for a sustainable food system. 
in a video posted on social media, two women with the words food reposte written on their t-shirts could be seen passing under a security barrier to get closer to the painting and throw soup at the glass protecting Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece. What's the most important thing, they shouted, art or right to a healthy and sustainable food. Our farming system is sick, they added. Louvre employees could then be seen putting black panels in front of the Mona Lisa and asking visitors to evacuate the room. Paris police said that two people were arrested following the incident. On its website, the Food Reposte group said the French government is breaking its climate commitments and called for the equivalent of a, the country's state-sponsored health care system to be put in place to give people better access to healthy food while providing farmers a decent income. Angry French farmers have been using their tractors for days to set up road blockades and slow traffic across France. They also dumped stinky agricultural waste at the gates of government offices. On Friday, the government announced a series of measures that farmers said don't fully address their demands. Those include drastically simplifying certain technical procedures. In U.S. news, House Republicans move toward impeaching Mayorkas. This is written by Rebecca Santana of the, Washington, of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. House Republicans on Sunday released two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as they vowed to swiftly push forward with election year efforts to oust him over what they call his failure to maintain or to manage the U.S.-Mexico border. The rare step against a cabinet member drew outrage from Democrats and the agency as a politically motivated stunt lacking the constitutional basis to remove Mayorkas from office. Republicans contend Mayorkas is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors that amount to a willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law on immigration and a breach of the public trust. Impeachment, they say, is Congress's only viable option. Alejandro N. Mayorkas willfully and systematically, systemically refused to comply with the immigration laws, failed to control the border to the detriment of national security, comprised public safety, and violated the rule of law and separation of powers in the Constitution to the manifest injury of the people of the United States, the impeachment resolution says. <clears throat> Only once in American history has a cabinet secretary been impeached, William Belknap, President Ulysses Grant's war secretary in 1876, over kickbacks in government contracts. Sunday's announcement comes as their other impeachment drive to impeach Democratic President Joe Biden in retaliation to his son Hunter Biden's business dealings has struggled to advance. Now for some short articles under the Digest heading. Israel says ceasefire talks will continue. Israel said significant gaps remain after ceasefire talks on Sunday with the United States, Qatar, and Egypt, but called them constructive and said they would continue in the week ahead, a tentative sign of progress on a potential agreement that could see Israel pause military operations against Hamas in exchange for the release of remaining hostages. The war has killed more than 26,000 Palestinians, according to local health officials, destroyed vast swaths of Gaza, and displaced nearly 85% to the territory's people. Israel says its ground and air offensive has killed more than 9,000 militants without providing evidence. 
The October 7th Hamas attack in southern Israel killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and militants took about 250 hostages. The statement from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office on the ceasefire talks did not say what the significant gaps were. Iran says it launched three satellites into orbit. This comes from Jerusalem. Iran said Sunday it successfully launched three satellites into space with a rocket that had multiple failures in the past, the latest for a program that the West says improves Tehran's ballistic missiles. The launch comes as heightened tensions grip the wider Middle East over Israel's continued war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip, sparking fear of a regional conflict. While Iran has not intervened militarily in the conflict, it has faced increased pressure within its theocracy for action after a deadly Islamic State suicide bombing earlier this month and as proxy groups like Yemen's Houthi rebels conduct attacks linked to the war. And briefly, Ukraine employees from a Ukrainian arms firm conspired with Defense Ministry officials to embed almost $40 million earmarked to buy 100,000 mortar shells for the war with Russia, Ukraine's Secretary Service or Security Service reported. The SBU said late Saturday that five people were charged. From South Carolina, President Joe Biden on Sunday extolled the existence of black churches, saying the world would be a different place if they were not around to show people the power of faith during times of darkness. The Democratic president spoke at St. John Baptist Church on the final day of a two-day visit to South Carolina. From Los Angeles, four people are dead following what police in Los Angeles characterized as a murder-suicide in the Grenada Hills area on Saturday. Officials responded shortly before 7 p.m. to a report of a shooting found four people who were pronounced dead at the scene. Church attack. Two masked assailants attacked a Roman Catholic church in Istanbul during a Sunday mass, killing one person. Interior Minister Ali Yerlikaya said in a statement on X. Yerlikaya said later that two men were arrested in the attack. From North Korea, South Korea's military said Saturday that North Korea fired several cruise missiles over waters near a major military shipyard on the country's eastern coast, extending a streak in weapons tests that are worsening tensions with the United States, South Korea, and Japan. And on the Finland election, former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb won the first round of Finland's presidential election Sunday and will face runner-up ex-foreign minister Pekka Havisto in a runoff next month. You're listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS programs, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. There are no obituaries or opinions in today's paper, so I'll read this news article entitled, New Efforts Underway to Save Sacred Forests. Many indigenous people believe the holy spaces are home to gods. It's written by Deepa Baroth of the Associated Press. The northeast Indian state of Meghalaya is home to more than 125 sacred forests. These are tracts of virgin woodlands 
that indigenous people believe are the abodes of their gods. Many of these forests are hallowed grounds where it is taboo to pluck a leaf. The pantheistic local religious practices have waned with the advent of Christianity, but environmentalists and some government programs are helping generate fresh enthusiasm for preserving these forests, which are water sources and treasure troves of biodiversity. Indigenous communities still perform rituals and animal sacrifices in or near these forests. Around the world, thousands of sacred forests still exist. They're the church forests in Ethiopia's highlands, hillside groves considered holy by Catholics in Italy, woodlands revered by Shinto practitioners in Japan, and indigenous people in Siberia, Australia, the Americas, and India. But climate change, pollution, and urbanization pose threats to these sacred spaces. Tended for generations by faithful caretakers, environmentalists, and governments are now making a push to protect these area. In many parts of the world, small groves or larger forests have been preserved because the local people consider these spaces their connection to the divine. Sacred forests share a number of commonalities. They are often in hilly areas where deities are said to reside. The trees, rivers, plants, animals, even the stones that inhabit the holy space are viewed as sacred as well. These woodlands may be sites that are linked to specific events and sites that surround places of worship or ancestral shine, shrines. Excuse me. Many sacred forests have restrictions prohibiting activities and limiting access only to specific communities. Hunting, gathering, woodcutting, cultivation, and other activities may be strictly prohibited in these spaces. In many sacred forests, even breaking a twig or plucking a leaf or flower is unacceptable. Selvi Nanji is a member of the Kurumba tribe that cares for Banagudi Shola, a sacred forest in Kodagiri in the Nilgiris hills of southern India. She said the worship spaces and temples in that woodland are often restricted to male members who perform the rituals and care for the shrines. Nanji, who now lives in Sweden, wrote a book titled Devasoli, which means sacred forest in Kurumba. In, Bangadu, in Banga, Banagudi Forest, entering with footwear is prohibited near holy shrines. However, in some forests, people are permitted to collect fallen timber or fruit as well as honey, medicinal plants, and wood for cremation. In India, the Karumbas, whose total population Nanji estimates as 2,000, are officially classified as Hindu. About 80% of India is Hindu. However, Nanji said indigenous religious practices and rituals are different from those of Hindu traditions. Hindu rituals typically involve offering coconuts and bananas to the deity, she said, but in indigenous traditions, we perform rituals with what is available in the forest. Resin from trees is used. Plants are used to dress the deities instead of fabric, which is typically used in Hindu temples. In Banagudi Shola, sacred rituals are performed annually by the tribe's men to coincide with agricultural seasons. An animal, typically a goat, is sacrificed during the ritual, Nanji said. The Karumba medicine people collect herbs, roots, and other bark from the forest, she said.
Are there different types of sacred forests? Yes. An example is Mutunad Mound near Kotagiri, a grassland that is sacred to the Toda tribe. Arda Kutin, an elder in the community, said this location is akin to the tribe's headquarters. The location is marked by a conical temple dedicated to the deity Moonbu, constructed with stone, cane, and special type of grass from the sacred grasslands. The annual temple ritual is a one-month affair featuring song, dance, rituals, and buffalo, which are sacred to the tribe. Celebrants eat a special meal during the festival, white rice mixed with buffalo buttermilk and butter. M. Alwas, who heads the Nilgiris Adivasi Welfare Association in Kodagiri, a nonprofit that aims to help tribes in the region, said one of the main challenges is getting the younger generation involved. Each community has its own traditional knowledge, says Alwas, who belongs to the Tota tribe. They have stories of why a forest or river or tree is important. As interest in preserving faith tradition wanes, Alwas fears those stories and practices could be lost with them, the value of these sacred spaces. While some worry tourism would make would commercialize the forests, others like Nanji believe the echo tour believe that echo tourism could be beneficial if done right. She said it might help outsiders understand the importance of sacred groves and boost job opportunities in the region. Spotlighting local food can also give traditional agriculture a much-needed shot in the arm, Nanji said. Now let's head to the sports page, and we'll start with the top article, which is entitled Chiefs Punch Ticket to Vegas. Defense helps KC earn its fourth trip to Super Bowl in five years. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey were at their magnificent best in the first half, and Kansas City's defense delivered another masterpiece against Lamar Jackson and Baltimore, helping the Chiefs reach the Super Bowl for the fourth time in five years with a 17-10 victory at the AFC in the AFC Championship game Sunday. Kelsey caught 11 passes for 116 yards and a touchdown, and now the big question at next month's Super Bowl in Las Vegas is whether his girlfriend, Taylor Swift, will be able to make it there in the middle of her tour. The pop star was on hand again Sunday, and the 34-year-old Kelsey was at his best. Kansas City will face San Francisco on February 11th, and a win would make the Chiefs the first team to win it all in back-to-back seasons since the New England Patriots 19 years ago. Swift's presence has turned the Chiefs into even more of a glamour team than they already were, but it's been more of a blue-collar performance on the field this season. Aside from Kelsey, Mahomes hasn't had the receiving playmakers he's enjoyed in years past. Instead, the defense has been a big part of why Kansas City won the AFC West and eventually prevailed in two straight road playoff games against Buffalo and Baltimore to win the conference. The Chiefs led 17-7 at halftime, and Justin Tucker's 43-yard field goal with 2 minutes 34 seconds to play was the only scoring of the second half. Baltimore kicked deep after that, and on 3rd and 9, Mahomes connected with Marquez Valdez-Scandling, one of his most maligned receivers, on a 32-yard pass that sealed the game. Mahomes went 30-39 of 39 for 241 yards and a touchdown. 
Jackson could win his second MVP after leading Baltimore to the league's best record and point differential during the regular season, but the Ravens allowed touchdowns on the first two Kansas City possessions and appeared a bit panicky at times after that. Baltimore made undisciplined mistakes all game, while Kansas City looked the part of the team making its sixth straight appearance in the conference title game. With the Ravens down by 10 in the third quarter, rookie Zay Flowers caught a 54-yard pass to the Kansas City 10, then was flagged for taunting after the play. Moments later, he fumbled near the goal line, and the Ravens ended up with no points. That was one of several frustrating moments for Baltimore fans, whose city was hosting an AFC championship game for the first time since January 1971 when the Colts beat the Raiders. Jackson went 20 of 37 for 272 yards and a touchdown, but Baltimore never really exploited its perceived advantage on the ground. Jackson raced under one of his own tipped passes in the first half for a 13-yard reception, but he also turned the ball over twice, including a forced pass into heavy coverage that was picked off in the end zone with 6 minutes 45 seconds left in the game. In the NFC Championship game, San Francisco treat 49ers rally for NFC title. Purdy leads 27-point outburst in second half to reach the Super Bowl. This is written by Josh Dubow. Brock Purdy threw for 267 yards and a touchdown, and the San Francisco 49ers rallied from 17-point down at half to beat the Detroit Lions 34-31 on Sunday and reach the Super Bowl. The 49ers scored 17 points in an eight-minute span of the third quarter to tie the NFC Championship game and then pulled away in the fourth quarter to earn a rematch against Kansas City after losing to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl four years ago. San Francisco mounted the fourth comeback ever from 17 points down or more in a conference title game thanks to some big plays by Purdy and bad mistakes from the Lions, including two failed fourth downs on in field goal range. Detroit fell short of reaching the first Super Bowl in franchise history. After being questioned about whether he could lead a comeback, Purdy has now done it twice in as many weeks. He engineered a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter to beat Green Bay last week and then had an even bigger comeback against the Lions. Christian McCaffrey had two TD runs and little used backup Elijah Mitchell scored on a three-yard run to make it 34-24 with three minutes and two seconds to play in as the Niners got over the conference title game hump after losing the past two seasons. The Niners blew a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter to the NFC Championship game against the Los Angeles Rams two years ago and then were forced to play much of last year's title game loss at Philadelphia without a functioning quarterback after Purdy injured his elbow on the opening drive and fourth stringer Josh Johnson left with a concussion early in the third quarter. But San Francisco managed to make the long journey back to this stage and now is in position to deliver the franchise its record-tying sixth Super Bowl title and first since the 1994 season. San Francisco's heralded front seven had no answer in the first half for Detroit's offensive line, which repeatedly opened up big holes, giving the backs several yards even before first contact. The Lions ran for 148 yards in the first half, getting TD runs from Williams, David Montgomery, and Gibbs. Michael Bagley added a late field goal to give Detroit a 24-7 lead at the half, 
tied for the second biggest scoring output for a road team in the first half of a conference title game since the NFL-AFL merger. In other NFL news, with Allen's support, Bills keep Brady as OC. Josh Allen's vote of support, coupled with a desire to maintain continuity, led to Joe Brady taking over as the Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator on a full-time basis. The team announced the decision on Sunday less than a week after Buffalo's season ended with a 27-24 loss to Kansas City in the divisional round playoff. Brady closed the season as the Bills' interim coordinator after Ken Dorsey was fired in mid-November. In the final seven regular season and two playoff games under Brady, the Bills' offense showed an increased level of balance and a renewed, with a renewed emphasis uh, placed on the running attack. The decision comes after the Bills held a short interview process, which included Brady last week. Brady also interviewed with the Atlanta Falcons for their head coaching vacancy, which has since been filled by Raheem Morris. The Cleveland Browns, a person familiar with the team's plan, tells the Associated Press the Cleveland Browns have hired former quarterback Ken Dorsey as their new offensive coordinator. Dorsey was fired as Buffalo's offensive coordinator earlier this season. Dorsey played for Cleveland from 2006 to 2008 and is one of 37 quarterbacks to start for the franchise since 1999. In NBA news, Mathurin scores 24 to help send Pacers past the Grizzlies. Benedict Mathurin scored 24 points off the bench. Jalen Smith sank a go-ahead three-pointer late, and the Indiana Pacers won their third consecutive home game 116-110 over the Memphis Grizzlies on Sunday. The game was tied at 107 when Smith drilled his third three-pointer with three minutes and ten seconds remaining. He finished with 19 points and 10 rebounds. The Pacers didn't trail again. Mathurin, who scored 19 points in the first half, made 9 of 14 shots, including three three-pointers. He also grabbed seven rebounds. And the Bulls defeated the Trailblazers 104-96. to DeMar DeRozan had 20 points, and Chicago snapped a two-game losing streak by winning at Portland. Kobe White had 15 points and 10 assists for the Bulls, while Andre Drummond came off the bench with 15. Jeremy Grant led Portland with 24 points, while DeAndre Ayton had 22 and 12 rebounds. The Blazers have lost four of their last five games. The Pistons defeated the Thunder 120-104. Jalen Duran had 22 points and a career-high 21 rebounds as Detroit ended Oklahoma City's five-game winning streak with a comfortable home victory. Duren's performance included a career-high 9 of Detroit's 15 offensive rebounds. Jaden Ivey added 19 points for the Pistons, who played without leading scorer Cade Cunningham, who was a late scratch for what the team termed injury management. Cunningham returned from a knee injury on Saturday. The Hawks defeated the Raptors 126-125. Sadiq Bey dunked in a Trey Young miss with 1.1 seconds left to lift host Atlanta to a victory over Toronto. It was the fifth straight loss for the shorthanded Raptors. The Raptors had taken a one-point lead when a young turnover in the backcourt led to a Scotty Barnes dunk with seven seconds remaining. And the Orlando Magic defeated the Phoenix Suns 113-98. 
Paulo Banchero scored 26 points as Orlando beat Phoenix at home, overcoming Devin Booker's 44-point effort. Phoenix went more than eight minutes without a field goal in the fourth quarter, losing its second straight after a seven-game winning streak. Booker was 17-26 from the field, making one of, 23, one of two three-point attempts and hit nine of 11 free throws, but he had only two points in the Suns' 11-point fourth quarter. In other NBA news, Randall out with dislocated shoulder. Julius Randall won't play for the New York Knicks on Monday in Charlotte because of a dislocated right shoulder. Randall was hurt Saturday with 4 minutes 27 seconds remaining in the Knicks 125-109 victory over Miami. He was driving to the basket when Heat rookie Jamie Jacquez Jr. stepped in front of him trying to take a charge. Randall landed hard, and once he finally got up, he was holding the area around his shoulder and quickly went to the locker room. Coach Tom Thibodeau said after the game that Randall was being evaluated by the Knicks medical staff. The Knicks have not provided an update, but ruled out their star forward on the injury report Saturday, Sunday afternoon. Randall averages 24 points, 9.2 rebounds, and 5 assists for the Knicks. And the Nets's Simons or Simmons could return Monday. Ben Simmons could return to the Brooklyn Nets on Monday after missing nearly three months because of a pinched nerve in his back. Simmons has played in just six games this season, none since November the sixth, and has missed the last thirty-eight. He practiced Saturday with the Nets NBA G League affiliate and coach Jacques Vaughn said afterward there was a high likelihood that the number one pick in the 2016 draft would play Monday against Utah. The Nets listed Simmons as probable to play Sunday in their injury report. Simmons has battled back injuries since the Nets acquired him from Philadelphia nearly two years ago. The Nets originally thought his injury in November was his left hip, before determining it was caused by an impingement in his lower back. In the National Hockey League, Pens enter break with work to do. Prior to a critical pair of home games, Brian Rust was frank about the Pittsburgh Penguins' unsavory position in the standings. The Wade winger proclaimed the Penguins were in a dogfight evidenced by their then 12th place position in the Eastern Conference. After sneaking out a point Friday night in a shootout loss to the Florida Panthers, Lars Eller felt the urgency of the Penguins needing to get two against the Montreal Canadiens on Saturday night at PPG Paints Arena. For me, it was the most important game of the season in a lot of ways, Eller said. It's not like we were out of it if we lose, but I feel like this was kind of a must-win game. They needed they indeed secured a victory by a 3-2 tally in overtime thanks to a Marcus Peterson game winner. In It vaulted the Penguins up to 10th in the East with four games in hand on their intrastate rival Philadelphia Flyers who currently possess the conference's final playoff spot. For morale purposes, the victory was significant, considering the Penguins won't be in action again until after the All-Star break, when they host the Winnipeg Jets on February the 6th. But in terms of separating themselves from the pack, the Penguins have much work to do. Only two Eastern Conference squads appear truly to be out of playoff contention, the Ottawa Senators and the Columbus Blue Jackets. Just four points separate the ninth-place New York Islanders and the Canadiens, who slot in at 14th as of Saturday evening.
In Sunday's games, the Blues defeated the Kings 4-3 in overtime. Braden Shen scored with one minute, four seconds into overtime to help host St. Louis beat Los Angeles on Sunday for its fifth consecutive victory. Jordan Cryo had one goal and two assists for St. Louis, which surrendered at least four goals in each of its previous four games against Los Angeles. Pavel Buknevich and Nick Letty also scored, and Joel Hoffer made 30 saves. And the Kraken defeated the Blue Jackets 4-2. Jordan Eberle had two goals and an assist in Seattle's three-goal first period, and the Kraken beat visiting Columbus. Jared McCann had a goal and an assist. Brandon Tanev also scored, and Oliver Bjorkstrand had two assists as Seattle extended its point streak to three games. Joey Decord stopped 30 shots. Yegor Chenakov scored twice in the third period for the Blue Jackets. And in news from around the league, Lane enters player assistance program. Columbus Blue Jackets forward Patrick Lane is entering the NHL-NHLPA player assistance program, the league and union announced Sunday. Lane will be away from the team indefinitely while he receives care from the joint program. Under the terms of the program, he can return to the team for practice and then games when cleared by administrators. Patrick has our complete support and our sole concern in his is his well-being, said Blue Jackets general manager Jarmo Kekalanen, adding the organization would have no further comment out of respect for Lane. And Rangers Sittel ruled out for the season. New York Rangers forward Philip Sittel will miss the rest of the NHL season after experiencing an injury setback. Sittel, age 24, had not played since early November because of suspected concussion issues that led him to go home to his native Chechia to skate with Jeremy Jager, among others, in an attempt to get back. The organization's top priority throughout this process has been Philip's health, and we will continue to fully support him in his recovery with an attempt to return for the 24-25 season, the Rangers said Sunday in a statement calling it only an upper body injury. That finishes up the sports, so we'll conclude today with the Ask Amy column. It's entitled, Stepmother Tired of Having to Suck It Up. Dear Amy, my husband and I blended our two families 24 years ago. My husband's middle son, Brett, has always been difficult. Last year, my beautiful 40-year-old son died suddenly and unexpectedly. Two weeks after his death, Brett and his 4-year-old son came out and stayed with us. Brett and my husband expected me to cook, clean, and pick up after all of them. It was awful. If I asked Brett not to let his son run around the house with food, I got a tongue lashing. My husband thinks I'm being dramatic, so he says nothing to his son. Now my other stepson, his wife, and their two children are due to stay with us next month to go skiing. They have no rules for their darling children, and my husband refuses to say anything to them. I have been told to suck it up and be an adult. I have thought of leaving while they are here to visit, but my beautiful home would probably be in a shambles when I return. Your thoughts? Signed, Depressed and Disappointed. Dear Depressed, I'm so sorry for your loss and for what you are going through now. Your household dynamic leaves little room for you to grieve and find comfort. Your husband holds the key to the dysfunction and lack of respect in your household. You quite obviously believe that you have no voice. 
I assume that the dynamic between you two is well established, but I wonder if your son's death has changed your perspective and perhaps opened your eyes to your husband's lack of support and respect. If he saw you as an important and equal partner in your own home, his children would too. If he saw, supported, and respected your needs and boundaries, his children would too. Now that you are aware of this dynamic, I hope you will assert your own rights. When this next group of family members visit, if you don't want to see them or serve them, then yes, you should leave. This would be your version of sucking it up and being an adult. Before you go, you could tell your husband quite plainly that you're taking a break and that you'd appreciate it if the house was in good shape when you returned. And the second letter, Dear Amy, gift giving is my love language and I really go above and beyond to give gifts to friends and family members for their special days. I genuinely enjoy doing this for others. However, I recently celebrated my birthday. I got phone calls and texts from the people I'm closest to and one person sent me a card, but I didn't receive any gifts at all. I'm really upset and have decided to stop giving to all of these people. Do you think I'm doing the right thing? Signed, Cheerful Giver. Dear Cheerful, if giving and receiving gifts is your love language, then you might feel better about the situation by reconsidering your definition of gifts. Your friends and family members remembered your birthday and got in touch with you. If you opened your eyes to these expressions, you might see these relationships themselves as giving, as gifts that keep on giving. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for uh, Monday, January the 29th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.